Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Global Change Agents with me, Leanna Brinded, the Digest Edition, a podcast brought to you by Yahoo Finance UK. You can watch a full version of this interview by heading over to yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. Joining me today is Dame Helena Morrissey. She's one of the most powerful women in UK finance. Dame Helena is also the head of personal investing at Legal and General Investment Management, which this year saw assets under management reach one trillion pounds. She is also the founder of the 30% Club, which campaigns for more gender balanced company boards. So Dame Helena, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Happy to be here. Thank you, Liana. And so, um, want to go back to the beginning because last year you did publish that book, A Good Time to Be a Girl. But before we come to that shortly, what were you like as a girl? I was um, bizarrely driven. So uh, I think when I was about seven or eight, I joined the Brownies and set myself the goal of becoming the sort of regional record holder for the number of Brownie badges. I have no idea why. I mean, this is something innate, something as part of me, nothing that my parents imposed on me. In fact, I'm sure I drove them slightly mad by making myself learn woodworking skills and semaphore skills. But I've always been that way. And I guess what I've tried to do in adult life is to use that um, to change things. So, as you said, that was very innate to yourself. It wasn't something that you're taught. So maybe there's a lot of girls out there that maybe don't have that in them or that confidence. Do you think that is key to becoming successful later on in life? Well, actually, I would say I wasn't necessarily that confident. There's a difference between sort of trying to do your best and really being a little bit um, competitive, but not really with other people, with myself. I was always trying to just... um, I guess, do the best I could. But I don't think I was particularly confident, uh, particularly as a teenager. I was quite a gawky, awkward, shy teenager. And um, I think that you can learn to be confident. You can fake it till you make it, actually. Um, And I think that's one of the things that often we women uh, look around and think, oh, there's these amazing women who've had it all and very confident and always been that way. Whereas often... I think, like me, people have taken it one step at a time and gradually become confident because you've seen the results come through. And do you think, I mean, the the question of confidence, especially around women, is one that comes up again and again. Do you think there needs to be maybe a rethink on how we define confidence? Because some people can be quietly confident, but not necessarily loud about it. Exactly. I mean, I think traditionally there's been a sense that he who shouts loudest should be the one that's listened to, and that often is men. And I don't believe that we should be training women to be more like men. I actually think bringing our feminine qualities to bear and the way we think about problems is sometimes slightly different, and that's to be celebrated and encouraged. But it takes a skillful chair of a meeting to bring out the, the perspective of someone who does hold back a little bit. It takes a, a, a skillful boss to recognize that it's not just about you know, speaking up, but actually sometimes about thinking carefully about an issue. So I do think a lot of things have to change, and it's not just about so-called fixing the women. 
later on in life, you um, actually graduate in philosophy. Yeah. Um, so what made you, and there was a bit of a flirtation with law. So what made you go into finance and did you have an innate love for it that you didn't realise or did you grow to love it? What, what was it? Um, definitely the latter. I grew to love it. I sort of fell into the city, the financial industry. Um, when I was at university, friends of mine, mostly male friends actually, were applying to city firms. And a couple of them said, you know, you should try Helena because, you know, you like, I, I had read philosophy, I was reading philosophy, but I had done maths and further maths, the sort of mathematical background uh, to that. And they said, you know, you like numbers, you like talking, <laughs> you like writing, um, and you might enjoy it. So at a bit of a loss of what to do, um, I thought, well, why not? Let's, let's throw my hat in the ring. Um, and actually what happened was I met some really interesting people when I was interviewed by a company called Schroeder's. And I can still picture to this day sitting in a very traditional uh, Cambridge college and uh, there was a man and a woman. And the woman in particular, with hindsight, was incredibly inspiring to me because she, she was in venture capital and she spoke very, very eloquently and with great feeling about enjoying what she did. And I guess I thought, well, I'll try it. And age 21... Uh, you can make a few mistakes. And I thought, well, if it doesn't work out, so be it. But actually, I did get a bit of a lucky break early on in my career. Uh, Schroeder sent me off to New York for a couple of years. Um, very energizing experience. Um, and I did see some amazing female role models there. When you got into finance, once you were there, it didn't get off to the smoothest start, correct? Can you no, talk about what happened there? So I had this sort of false dawn in New York, you know, that out of the four senior people in the office there, two were women and two were men. And the women seemed to really control the shots and really love their lives. But I realised that that wasn't quite the way that it was normally. I came back to London and soon found myself the only woman in a team of 16. And now as a bond fund manager, fixed income, um, and that still is a very male-dominated area. And soon after I had my first child, I came back from maternity leave and was passed over for the first promotion. Um, it was not supposed to be a big deal. It was the first rung on the ladder. And I, of course, had been picked from all the graduates to go off to New York. I was supposedly, you know, on a sort of fast track. And when I didn't get it, I asked what I was doing wrong. And my boss, obviously a man, because everyone around me was men, um, said, oh, there's nothing wrong with your performance, but there is some doubt over your commitment with a baby. Now, no one would ever say that today because of legislation. But although I was shocked and very disappointed um, and a little bit unsure about what to do, then it obviously made me very much aware that my gender was an issue. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, soon after I left that company and found a much more meritocratic culture. Um, and I guess that's one of my tips always for young women to say, you know, if you hit a brick wall, um, it's not always going to be because of you. There may be something uh, around you, the culture, uh, the traditional hierarchy. There may be one or two individuals that are blockers. You may have to leave. How do you feel that shaped you from then onwards when it came to the fact, not just that um, gender was clearly an issue for the boss at the time or what, whatever hierarchy, but that if you did want more children, that that would somehow, um, would you worry that that was going to crop up again no matter where else you went to? Well, uh, we should skip forward to the fact that in the end I had nine children. So clearly I overcame any reticence <laughs> throughout that. But actually it did take uh, me a while to pluck up the courage, and it is the right way to put it, to have my second child. There's a reasonably large age gap over three years between my first and second. 
And partly that was about finding my feet at the new firm. But also I did, I had learned, I mean, what I'd really learned from that first experience was that just sort of leaning into the status quo, trying to sort of fit in and be a, you know, as good as the men or be like the men, uh, just wasn't going to work. Um, that I, I honestly knew that I had something to offer, but I needed to find a place where what I had to offer as myself was going to be valued. And I really lucked out in my second job. So I was a complete failure in the eyes of the world in my first, you could argue, and then I really fell on my feet in the second. And my boss uh, was a founder of the firm, Stuart Newton, and he had built a whole firm on the premise that diversity of thought, so not just about gender, but that was the real driver of the right result, the right decisions. So investment success was all about having lots of different perspectives. Had a slogan, no one has a monopoly on great ideas. And that was so ahead of its time. I mean, we're talking about the, uh, the mid-1990s. Um, and it meant that, you know, he, they told me when I joined, they said, you do know that we have a more generous maternity policy here than the norm, that actually you don't have to work here for two years to go off and have a baby. I mean, who would do that? <laughs> they, um, and it really gave me a huge sense of confidence. And that was, for me, the turning point about building my confidence. Up until that point, I'd argue I was a pretty shy and sort of insecure young woman, didn't know really how to dress or how to sort of speak. I just sort of tried to put my head down and work really hard. And I realized that to get on my career, I had to strategize and I had to have people who would encourage me. Well, it sounds fascinating how ahead of the time the culture was there mm. and uh, clearly making impact on yourself. Were there things that while you were there that helped, um, I suppose, add impact to the culture there already? Did you um, participate or champion for anything within the company to make it even better than it was? So I'll be honest, for the first several years of my time there, um, I was just, you know, make sure I was not going to have that same result in my first job. And um, so I did work hard. I did uh, realize that I needed to put my hand up for, for new responsibilities. And I did, I was a bit selfish, to be honest. And I don't really feel too embarrassed about saying that in terms of I was looking after my family, uh, providing for my family, because my husband by that stage was a stay-at-home dad. And, and I, I was a bit selfish. But then when I became chief executive of that firm, seven years after having joined, which is quite a quick uh, trajectory, particularly since I was quite junior, I really wanted to use my position at that point to help other women. And I wanted to make sure that women coming up behind me didn't have that same experience that I had had. And so I started a women's development network in my own company. Um, but to be honest, it, it didn't have great results. I mean, everyone said how inspiring the events were. But a few years in, I thought, wow, this is not really having the impact. Um, and that really sowed the seeds of what became the 30% Club, because I realized, in all honesty, women talking to women about women's issues, which is effectively what we were doing, wasn't going to get lots of women promoted. It might help us feel less isolated and more encouraged, but it wasn't going to be enough. So let's get on to the 30% Club, which was fantastic. It was uh, launched in 2010. And um, back in 2010, there was only 12.5% of FTSE 100 directors um, that were female. Now it's around 30%. I mean, can you talk through how that campaign first started? Did you feel that um, you had to cross certain barriers um, across the whole time to get to that goal? What Okay. So, I mean, it's a great example and one I hope that could be uh, instrumental in other change um, 
uh, campaigns that people have, that sometimes there's a terrible moment, in this case it was a financial crisis, which means that everyone suddenly realises things have to change. The financial crisis had shown that having particularly bank boards made up of one type of person was problematic. You had groupthink. You didn't have enough challenge. The recipe was we'd have the chairman of FTSE companies, but also then we went more broadly. And it had to be men. So this, at the time we launched 2010, 99 out of the FTSE 100 chairs were men. So there was no choice <laughs> to have men involved. And, um, and we had to have a goal. 30% is the critical mass point. It's obviously not parity. And actually we're through 30% now in the UK. It's just over 31.5%. So we People say we should have a new target, but I'll come back to that. Um, so not the 50% club. Not the 50% club. I think, well, to be honest, it's become shorthand for just gender equality. And we don't obviously have 30% female CEOs in FTSE companies. We don't have 30% on executive committee committees. And, and now it's a global initiative anyway. There are 11 around the world. So, um, but there was a lot of antagonism to start with. So we had seven founding chairs who were enlightened who, for a variety of reasons, but mostly said... You know, I've seen the difference that having women on my board can make. The conversation's better, the decision's making better, but I'm frustrated about the pace of change. And they were fantastic advocates for it, much more powerful than I could have been at the time. And yet they were the minority. Um, and I started to write to all of the FTSE 350 chairs, um, alphabetically, started with A, obviously, and got down to HA for Hansen. Um, by that point, I had a lot of replies back from the A's and B's are mostly incredibly hostile. Most people thought it was just a women's issue, it wasn't a business issue, that I was sort of interfering where it wasn't my job to interfere. And it was really interesting seeing how over the next few years uh, that became, instead of it being the majority view, very much I went silent and then just disappeared completely. And it became seen as just part of what it takes to have a modern board to have better gender balance. And of course now there's more work on ethnicity and socioeconomic backgrounds and more age diversity as well. We don't want to have all 60 year olds on boards because they're not necessarily going to be digitally savvy and so forth. So, um, so it has been really fascinating to me to see in a relatively short space of time how the mindset can shift and people can go from a very hardened resistance to actually, okay, I get it. I'm in the wrong planet here, the wrong age, um, and get with the programme. The last thing is about the unconventional home life. You have nine children. Yeah. Um, you say you have a stay-at-home husband. And so, I mean, from someone from the outside, it seems like you have it all. I would ask, um, to wrap up, one, do we need to stop saying, especially for women, um, you can have it all? Mm. And two, um, in terms of... Your husband is stay at home, so does that give you a lot more advantages than a lot of other people in terms of being able to have that home life as well as the career? Well, on the second one first, I mean, definitely we had um, four children before he became a stay at home dad. He was a financial journalist and we were, so I'm very well versed and experienced in, in that whole frenzy that goes on. And I talk about it in my book about, you know, when you're all struggling to get, you know, you've got a sick child and the stress that puts on, on your relationship, on the family um, and on your work um, as well. So I am very uh, conscious of that and very conscious of how beneficial it's been for me to ha have a husband who's at, who's at home. I would say that having nine children means that he's not exactly putting his feet up and there is quite a lot logistically that still has to happen. Um, I think it's been, um, what I want to stress is that it's not, there's no one size fits all or no single 
uh, recipe for, for life. And it does irritate me a little bit. And I think it's the wrong message around having it all because it implies like as if we're being very greedy and wanting everything. Clearly, there are um, sacrifices, there are compromises, there are decisions that have to be made. Um, no one has it all, all of the time. The best advice I was ever given was by a woman who was more senior than me at BMY Mellon, the parent company of Newton, who had grown up twins. And she said that when I twins were young, I felt I was in the wrong place at the wrong time always. Um, I still suffer from the guilt, you know, or wishful thinking. I wish I was at the play or, you know, they're on holiday now, doing the fun things they're doing with them. But she said, someone told me, lead the life you're living and just do that best you can in that moment. And ever since I've really embraced that, I have felt um, that, yes, you can have a, a, a wonderful time. You can enjoy your life at home and at work much more easily than if you're always looking over your shoulder at what might be. Um, there is no such thing as having it all, but I don't think we should have to make a choice between family and career. Thanks for listening to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, produced by Yahoo Finance UK. A full version of this interview can be found at yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. And for more information, go to uk.finance.yahoo.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.